Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. This morning, I encourage you to join me, if you will, in the 23rd chapter of 2 Samuel. And I want to read verses 8 through 12 in this chapter, and then verses 20 to 22, as we think again about David's men that came to him while he was in the stronghold of the cave of Adullam. And today, let's think about David's mighty men. 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tachmanite that sat in the seat chief among the captains, the same was Adino the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800, whom he slew at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo the Ahoite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle and the men of Israel were gone away, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clave unto his sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils, And the people fled from the Philistines, but he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. Now read verses 20 to 22. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. He went down also and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in time of snow. And he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man, and the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. But he went down to him with a staff, and he plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and had the name among three mighty men. Now this entire chapter, all the way to the very end, describes David's mighty men. And there are so many names here that I can't pronounce. I'm sure you would have difficulty as well. They're unfamiliar names to most of us, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, the Lord willing. But I want you to notice this is a roll call of men who distinguish themselves in David's service. It's sort of like a soldier's memorial. We're familiar, aren't we, in cultural life with memorials to those who served valiantly in a noble cause. Sometimes a school will have a trophy case with pictures of their championship team and the names of the coach and the players beneath the picture. It's a memorial to remember the heyday, to remember a monumental and epical event in the life of that school. And of course, we're all familiar with the Vietnam Soldiers Memorial the large black granite stones in our nation's capital. Inscribed upon it are the names of men and women who gave their lives in that conflict for the cause of freedom and in representation of America. There are also memorials for other wars, the Korean War Memorial and so forth. 
Well, what we have in 2 Samuel 23 and its parallel passage, 1 Chronicles chapter 11, is a divinely inspired memorial in God's book to people whose names we probably otherwise never would have heard of, common people like you and me, whom the rest of the world probably doesn't really even know exists, but yet God saw fit to inscribe their names in his holy book. Now, the people that are listed here were some of the people that we talked about last Sunday in our message, Gathering Unto Our David, from 1 Samuel 22, who voluntarily enlisted under David's command. I wonder if you remember that passage. It says that David abode in the cave of Dullam, and there gathered to him his father and his mother and his brethren, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves to David, and he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So what we have in that passage is David is on the run from King Saul, and he's found a hiding place in this underground cavern called the Cave of Adullam, and as word gets out that David is there, his family comes out, and little by little there's a trickle of people who defect from Saul's kingdom to ally themselves to David. It's a really wonderful event. Imagine if you were in David's shoes and you were all alone and the king and his soldiers were chasing you like a hunter chases a quail through the woods. And David was trying to escape for his life and finally he finds asylum in this cave and he is overwhelmed, of course, with stress and anxiety and He's looking over his shoulder and he feels to be all alone. And suddenly he gets reinforcements that he had not expected. Now he didn't send for these. He didn't ask for these. God sent them. But what we have from this point forward in David's life is he's not all alone against the world anymore, but he has a growing band of loyal followers. And it says that when they came to him, he decided to make them into a militia. He became a captain over them. Now, I doubt they came out to him in order to say, let's form an army. They were just fleeing their discontent, their debt, their problems, their distress. They were tired of living in Saul's kingdom. And, of course, we drew some spiritual lessons from that last Sunday about God's children who are called to come out from this world, leave Saul's kingdom, and come to your Jesus and enlist under his authority Ally yourselves to his cause. And of course, David was an unpopular man at this time, and we made the point that Jesus is not popular. But my beloved, God's children are called to resist the urge to please people and to follow the one who understands their case. And David became their captain, just like Jesus is our captain today. And an army of 400 strong is not much of an army to be honest with you, but it's better than one against Saul and all of his kingdom. So suddenly he has these supporters. It's an unspectacular and disreputable band of men, but a number of them became mighty men of valor, as we read in our text today, through their heroic exploits in David's service. Now I want you to turn back before we come to our text to 1 Samuel 22 for just a moment, and I want you to consider some of the events that happened in the immediate aftermath of David's makeshift militia, this 
motley band that joined themselves to him. 1 Samuel 22. And I want you to notice in verse 5, Gad the seer, who's a prophet, said to David, Abide not in the hold. Don't stay in the stronghold or in the cave, but depart and get into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Hereth. So David leaves the cave and he and his men go to the forest. And then in verses 6 through 8, when Saul heard that David was discovered, that is, word got out that he was in the cave of Adullam, and when Saul heard that he had reinforcements, Saul, who was under a tree in Ramah, having his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him, said to his servants that stood about him, Here now, ye Benjamites. Now, Saul was a Benjamite, and evidently his servants are all family. He stacked the deck with his own tribal loyalties. He said, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? I want you to see how paranoid Saul is. If David becomes king, will he do for you what I've done for you? Will the son of Jesse give you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands? The implication is like I have, and captains of hundreds. He said, all of you have conspired against me. Now, I'm sure they're looking at each other with a quizzical look on their face. But Saul is so demented, he's so paranoid, he sees a ghost behind every closet. He thinks that these people are in a conspiracy with David to try to overthrow him as the king. And Saul says, all of you have conspired against me. That's quite an accusation. And there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. He, he says, nobody's even come to me and told me that my own son Jonathan is disloyal to me. And there is none of you that is sorry for me. <laughs> it sounds like he's having a big time pity party, doesn't it? Or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Now I'm sure they're looking at each other like, what? I mean, this never entered their minds that they were conspiring with David against Saul. Now David's out there on the run. Saul's been chasing him, trying to kill him. And now he accuses his own loyal soldiers of being involved in a plot to overthrow his kingdom. And then Doeg the Edomite answered and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him victuals, that is food, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So you know what Saul does? Immediately he calls for Ahimelech and the priests that were in Nob, and they all came to the king. There are 85 of them. And Saul says to Ahimelech, Why have you conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse, in that thou hast given him bread and a sword? And hast inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait. So he accuses him of being involved in a conspiracy. You're not loyal to me either. Now, Ahimelech's the priest. Here's the political leader calling the religious leader of the nation. And accusing him of being involved in a conspiracy, a coup d'etat. Then Ahimelech answered and said, Who is so faithful among all thy servants as David? In other words, I, I never dreamed that... He was against you. He's your best soldier. You know, it was David that won the battle over Goliath, remember? Ahimelech is puzzled that Saul would now think that David's his enemy. I mean, David's the one who kept you in power. Who's so loyal as David, which is the king's son-in-law? He's married to your daughter. 
and he goeth at thy bidding, and he's honorable in thine house. In other words, Ahimelech is saying, I'm not privy to everything that's happened, but as far as I know, David's reputation is that he is very committed to King Saul and his kingdom. He said, let not the king impute anything unto his servant. Don't charge me with wrongdoing, nor to all the house of my father, for thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. And the king is not moved by Ahimelech's defense. He says, thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. And he said to the footman that stood about him, turn and slay the priests of the Lord. I want you to see how disastrous Saul's mental state is in the actions that take place here. He says, turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. I want you to kill all the preachers. You talk about religious persecution. Because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. They didn't have any idea that he was living as a fugitive. As far as they knew, he was on official business. Like Saul had frequently sent him on official business. But the servant of the king would not put forth his hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. Praise God for a few people of integrity and conscience here and there. But then he said to Doag the Edomite, Turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doag the Edomite who was a descendant of Esau, was all too glad to comply. And he fell upon the priests and slew on that day fourscore and five persons. He slaughtered 85 priests that did wear the linen ephod. So here is the immediate aftermath of what happened when these soldiers came out to David and Saul is realizing that he's starting to lose people and that David is building a coalition of people spontaneously, not organized in the least extent, but yet... Saul is beginning to see the handwriting is on the wall. And I want you to notice, though, that one of the priests, one of the sons of Ahimelech, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar came, and now they have a resident chaplain. Since Abiathar is with David's mighty men now, he's the priest, he escapes and comes to him, and he told David what had happened that Doeg, under Saul's direction, had slain the Lord's priest. And David said to Abiathar, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. David feels responsible. And he says to Abiathar, Abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life. But with me thou shalt be in safeguard. So now David's band is growing. But they're having to live on the run, and they're presently in this forest, the woods in the hill country of Judah, as we read in that chapter. Now, in the very next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 23, it says, Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Keilah. Now, David's not in charge. This isn't an official military. He's not the leader of the nation. He's a fugitive. But he hears the news that the Philistines are attacking Israel in Keilah. And David inquired of the Lord, should I go? Now, it's not his responsibility. But David feels responsible. Notice he's beginning to act like a king, even though he is not yet the king. Now, where is Saul? Why isn't Saul on a military campaign after these Philistines? Why isn't Saul doing his job as the king and protecting the nation? Because Saul is consumed on a personal agenda to assassinate David. Saul is thinking about one thing and one thing only, and he's abdicated his responsibilities to the nation. So David now and his men step in and start fighting the battles of Israel that Saul and his army, his official army, should have been fighting. 
And I want to say that David's makeshift militia is not like Robin Hood and his merry men. For David and his men do not rob from the rich to give to the poor. But I dare say their exploits were comparable to Robin Hood and his merry men in the sense that David's mighty men distinguished themselves for uncommon valor. Now, they weren't much to look at initially. They were distressed. They were in debt. They were discontented. This is a motley band again. But by the time we're done, they are distinguished for uncommon valor. To think about the psychological effect that this growing militia had on the demented king, Saul. Suddenly, David has reinforcements. That significantly raises the stakes, making Saul's campaign to slay David, his perceived rival, increasingly dangerous. Now it's going to take more soldiers. You know, he could have taken just a few of his secret service agents with him if he was going after David before, one against a dozen. But now he has to take an entire group because he's got to deal with a growing threat. Now, let's make some preliminary observations on the text we took in 2 Samuel 23. Notice the names that I read in your hearing are unfamiliar and relatively obscure names. In fact, if you want to read some really obscure names, let me read some of the rest of these later in the chapter, 2 Samuel 23, and I won't read where they were from. I'll just try to read their names. Here's a quick sampling. Verse 24, Asahel, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, Shammah, Elika, Helez, Ira, Abiezer, Mebunai, Zalmon, Meharai, Heleb, Ittai, Benaiah, Hidai, Abiobon, Asmaveth, Elihabah, Shammah, Ahiam, Eliphalet, Hezri, Igal, Zelek, Ira, an Ithrite, Garib, an Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite. 30 and 7 in all. Now, you say, Brother Mike, you mispronounced some of those names. How do you know? <laughs> you, you see, I can read them and pronounce them however I want because you don't know what they sound like. Nobody else does either. Who were these people? Have you ever heard of them before? You say, one or two maybe, but these are not household words. And if every word in the Bible is there on purpose, you know, I mean, God's book is divinely inspired. And if Jesus, all the things that he did, if they were written in the books, the world itself could not contain the volumes, you can rest assured God didn't waste any space in the one book he did write. So why are these there? Who are these people? They're just nameless people as far as we're concerned. I mean, we've never heard of them before, probably never will again, won't remember their names, certainly. Who are they? I think we can draw several points from this. First, how many of our Lord's true servants are numbered among the willing unknowns in this world? You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 9, we are unknown, yet we're well known. As far as men are concerned, they don't even know that I exist, said Paul. In his day, Paul was just a very obscure background kind of person. I want to tell you, most of the Lord's true servants through the years have been just average, common people who the world did not take notice of. Most of us have been Iras and Garibs and Helebs and Benaiahs and Elihabahs. But you know, my beloved, even though we're unknown by men, we're well known 
Paul said, I'm unknown, but yet I'm well known. And how wonderful to know that the Lord knows them that are his. He numbers his sheep and calls them all by their names. And though the world at large does not know that you and I exist today, and it's okay that they don't. I mean, we're willing unknowns. We're willing to be unnoticed and unapplauded and, and unspectacular. Yet the Lord knows every detail about his true servants. He knows the Asahels and the Shamas in his true service today. You know, I've often thought it was significant that God chose a preacher that we never hear about before nor after in Acts chapter 9 to preach to the eminent apostle Paul. After Saul's Damascus Road experience, God picks a preacher. Now, he's not an apostle. He's not one of the, you know, headliners. His name is not on the marquee. His name is Ananias. And interestingly, you never hear about Ananias before Acts 9, and you never hear about him after Acts 9, except when Paul is retelling the story of what happened to him. He's not what you would call, you know, one of your keynote speakers, one of your Christian celebrities. He's just a faithful servant that God had a special task for, but God chose him to preach to the eminent apostle to the Gentiles, Saul of Tarsus, who became the apostle Paul, God chose Ananias. You say, Brother Mike, I'm not popular. You know, my name is, you know, it's not a household word among the Lord's people. That's okay. In fact, that's probably preferable because the Lord knows. And he's able to choose not a Peter, not a James or a John to preach to Paul, but he chooses a man again that is basically unnoticed, Ananias. I want to tell you a true servant of God does not seek recognition. Like his Savior, he does not lift up nor cry nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Like John the Baptist, he says, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. John chapter 3, verse 30. That's the right attitude for a true servant of God. You know, another lesson I think we can learn from these obscure and unfamiliar names in 2 Samuel 23 is that common people may play a very strategic role in the Lord's service. Just as these average people allied themselves to David and they distinguished themselves for their valiant works. So my friends, the people that know their God, as Daniel 11:32 says, shall be strong and do exploits. Now, I don't ordinarily leap over tall buildings in a single bound, and I'm not able to run through a troop and single-handedly put 10,000 to flight. I'm not a Rambo to save the day. You know, the, some of these Hollywood movie stars that you say, oh, we need somebody like that. Most of us are not like that, are we? But God uses ordinary people like you and me, the Iras and the Galebs again, and the Abiezers in his service. And the people that know their God will be strong and do exploits. They'll do these fantastic things. And I want you to notice thirdly that the Lord knows how to honor his faithful servants. I love a verse in Hebrews 6.10 that says, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love that you've shown toward his name and that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. God remembers those who are true to him, who are faithful to him. He that honors me, he says in 1 Samuel 2.30, I will honor. And I love a promise Jesus makes to his servants in John 12.26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there also will my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. 
What a promise to God's faithful servants. You serve Christ. You say, well, I want to be the star. I want to be the headliner. I want to be the one in lights. No, you'd be willing to play a supporting role, to be in the supporting cast, not the lead actor. You'd be willing, my friends, to join forces with a cause bigger than yourself. Ally yourself to David because he's the man of your hopes and deem it a privilege to be involved in his service, and God promises to honor those that honor him. Now, how did he honor these mighty men of David? He recorded their names in the Bible. Now, my name's not, in, well, my name is in the Bible, but it doesn't refer to me. It's, it's an archangel, Michael. But I didn't have my name written in the Bible. I had my name in the Freona Star local newspaper one time. Have you ever read that paper, the Freona Star? You haven't? Well, it was about as popular as the Brunswick Beacon is in our community, you know? I mean, it was the local newspaper. Everybody subscribed, everybody read it, and I had my name in the Freona Star one time, but even though it's probably microfiched somewhere, I'm sure that issue is not, you know, people don't have it on their coffee tables and show it to their neighbors when they come to visit. So look, here's Michael Goins. I'll tell you, these men's names are written in the Bible for all posterity. And history records them. We're talking about them this morning. Now, we don't talk about them every Sunday. They're just regular people, but they joined to David and they became something. Their lives had purpose. And they accomplished tremendous things. And then the final preliminary observation I want to make is their uncommon valor and we read a few of the stories just a moment ago, but notice how it's attributed to the blessing of God. Verse 10 in 2 Samuel 23 says that when one arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, it says the Lord wrought a great victory that day. Notice he fought, but God won the battle. You see it again in verse 12 about Shammah. He stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines and the Lord wrought a great victory. Twice we're told that God gets the glory. Their uncommon valor, their mighty exploits are attributed to the blessings of God. You see, there's no place for any man to take the glory to himself in these stories. Now let's talk for a few moments about some of the characteristics of these mighty men. And of course, the application we're making, we're drawing a parallel today between their loyalty to David and what they did in his service to those of us who are employed in our king's service today who are connected and allied to the Lord Jesus in his kingdom. And let's learn several salient lessons from David's mighty men. First, notice the tenacity that refuses to let go in the story of Eliezer in verses 9 and 10. After him, he says, was Eliezer, one of the three mighty men with David. When they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle. Now remember, I told you that right after David got this group together, the Philistines had sieged Keilah, and Saul should have been Johnny on the spot to repel the attack, but he did nothing. So David and his men went well, that's sort of the same situation now in verse 9 of 2 Samuel 23. When they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away, this man Eliezer, it says in verse 10, arose and smote the Philistines. So what happens is the Philistines are there gathered to battle, 
and the Philistines have occupied the land, this man Eliezer smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave to his sword. Now, have you ever held a garden instrument like a hoe or a shovel or a rake or perhaps some other machine, maybe a jackhammer or a pressure washer, so long that it was like your fingers were frozen around it. And when you were done, you just had to pry them off. They had seized up because you were so long at it, you know, maintaining the tension of that moment. That's the picture here. He smote the Philistines with his sword until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto his sword. I suggest that this speaks of a great character trait for Christ's soldiers, a tenacity that refuses to let go. The New Testament tells us over and again how important it is to have perseverance in the Lord's service, to have staying power. We used to call it, when I was a boy growing up, stick to You know, do you have stick to That boy, he can stick to it. He continues on. He's like a postage stamp. Remember Elder Sonny Pauls preached a sermon one time on comparing a Christian to a postage stamp. And one of the points he made is that we should be like the stamp that it sticks to its target until it reaches its destination. It sticks to the envelope. And we should stick to it until we've reached our destination. We should have staying power. A long obedience in the same direction, keeping on, keeping on, come what may, never giving up, never giving out, never giving in. That's what Eliezer teaches us. What a great quality that is for Christ's soldiers. May you and I have the tenacity that refuses to let go, even until we're weary. You know, sometimes I get wearied in pastoral ministry. Sometimes I feel like that the work is never done. There's always more to do. There's always more prayers to say, more reading to do, more study to do, more people to minister to. I can't seem to ever feel like I've caught up. And I, I think it's probably that way in every area of life, not just ministry. But it's that way in child rearing. It's that way in family. You ever noticed about the time you get the house completely clean, it's time to start over again and wash the windows again and wash the clothes? You say, well, look, the dishes are all done. They're put away. But, you know, just wait for a few hours and you'll have another load. And you say, doesn't it ever stop? Well, it will one day, my friends. It will when you breathe your last. And then the work will be done. But you see, until then, we've got to have a tenacity about us. God's people need to not be so touchy and pampered. And there's a certain masculinity that's important in serving our Lord. Quit you like men, he says. Stand fast. Abide under. Persevere. This is what Eliezer teaches us. It's a great quality for Christ's servants. Notice secondly, not only the tenacity that refuses to let go, but notice the story of Benaiah. In verses 20 to 22, we see a courage that tackles lions and giants. Tenacity, that's stick to itiveness. Courage, that's a holy boldness. And we read that in verses 20 to 22. Benaiah, it says, who was the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, his dad was a man of valor who had done many acts. I mean, his own dad was famous. Now the son follows in his dad's footsteps. It says he slew two lion-like men of Moab. Now, I don't know what a lion-like man is, 
but it probably speaks of one who's fierce, who's as dominant and has a commanding presence like the lion would among the beasts of the forest. A lion is the king of the jungle for a reason, because it's intimidating. Its presence inhibits its prey, and they run from it, you know. So these two men apparently are quite the physical specimens, two lion-like men. Not only did he slay two lion-like men of Moab, now this one man, Benaiah, slew two of these Andre the Giant kind of figures, but also it says he slew a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. In a time of winter, he went down and slew a lion, and then it says in verse 21, he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man, handsome, impressive in his appearance, and the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and he went down to him with a staff. Now, like a shepherd's staff, this man had a spear. If you read the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 11, this Egyptian was about seven and a half feet tall. He's a giant. And he has a spear like a weaver's beam. I mean, this is one powerful man with a formidable weapon in his hand. But Benaiah went down with the shepherd's staff. He took the giant's spear out of his hand and slew him with his own spear. He plucked it out of his hand, and it says he slew him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, and he had the name among three mighty men. Notice he's slaying lions and giants, and I'm sure David likely saw himself in Benaiah, for David had slain a lion. Remember when he kept his father's sheep? He took a lion and a bear. He took a lion by his mane, and he slew him with his own hands to protect the sheep. And then David also confronted the giant Goliath. And with a single stone, David felled this experienced soldier and delivered Israel from Philistine oppression. Indeed, my friends, you and I, like Benaiah and like David, we too face a lion. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's on the prowl. And my beloved, it's scary. If I heard that there was a lion in the streets of Calabash, I'd stay home and I'd keep my kids home, you know, until the authorities were able to capture it and uh, ensure the safety of the citizenry once again. But you know, the devil is walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and he's destroying one life after another. Many of God's children, my friends, are falling prey to his tactics, many of them through drugs, through immorality through false ideas, through cultish teachings. Unbiblical ideas are swallowing these ideas and they're deceived today and their lives are in bondage to the flesh and to the world and the devil. But we must never be afraid. We must be like Benaiah, who has the courage to tackle whether it's a lion in a pit on a snowy day or whether it's two lion-like men we should have the courage, my friends, through our God to stand and to fight the battles of King Jesus for God has promised to strengthen us. Never be afraid. I love the words in Joshua chapter 1 when Moses had died and God said to Joshua, there shall not be any man to stand before thee. You're going to take Moses' place. You're in charge now, Joshua. And here's my promise to you. Now, if we think Joshua was born with courage, I have to tell you, that's not the case at all. There's none of us who have courage and boldness as a natural quality. It must be given from God. 
And God says to Joshua, don't be afraid, for no man will be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life, for as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I love that. God buries his workmen, but he carries on his work. And Joshua, God says, I'll be with you just as I was with him. I want to tell you today, dear friends, God's promised to be with you and me just as he was with our ancestors, just as he was with our fathers. You say, he blessed in former days. He's promised to bless us as well. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage. Now, he wouldn't have any need to say that unless Joshua was tempted to be afraid. God says, only be thou strong and very courageous, verse 7, that thou mayest observe to do all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. And then notice verse 9, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Oh, my friends, I want to encourage you to claim that promise and to take it with you today. Don't be afraid of the pressure that's around us. You say, what if the government, well, my friends, bring it on? We don't court it. We don't invite it. But at the same time, we're not afraid to stand firmly and to speak plainly and to tell the truth of the word of God, come what may. Because there are lions out there. There are giants out there, but I'll tell you, our God's a giant slayer. Our David has already felled the greatest giants you will ever face. He's already conquered the lion. The lion of Judah has conquered the roaring lion already. And I'm glad to be allied with the Lord Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, thirdly, the characteristic of Shema in verses 11 and 12. Not only do we need a tenacity that refuses to let go, and a courage that tackles lions and giants. But like Shema, we need a conviction that stands alone, if need be, for what is right. In verses 11 and 12, we read the story about Shema. And it says, When the Philistines were gathered together into a troop, there was a piece of ground full of lentils. First Chronicles 11 tells us it was full of barley, a grain. The lentils refers to vegetables or peas is a bean field, probably. And First Chronicles 11 tells us that it was barley. So it's some kind of grain. This is a farmer's field. And so there's one field there. Why are the Philistines attacking it? Because they want the food supply. They're after the food. They're trying to steal the food for themselves. Notice Shema, it says, when the people fled, Shema stood in the midst of the ground and defended it. One man stood alone against the Philistines and the Lord wrought a great victory as he slew the Philistines and he protected that field. Now, you know, I think this man, Shema, did what he did because it was the right thing to do. He was protecting a man's crops. He was protecting a farmer's livelihood, the one that worked that field. And his conviction to do that to stand alone for righteousness, I believe was born from a tender conscience. You know, the conviction that stands firmly always springs from a conscience that is sensitive to God. Regardless of the personal cost, Shema was a man of principle and he defended the field and God gave him the victory. 
You know, men of principle are increasingly rare in our world. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, a faithful man who can find. We like to quote, who can find a virtuous woman. There aren't many of those around. I know of several of them in this congregation, but you know, uh, a faithful man is just as rare. A man who's a man of integrity, an honest man, a man who keeps his word, a man who will swear to his own hurt and change not, as Psalm 15 tells us. That's a conviction that's born out of conscience. He's a man of principle. And how we need such people of conviction in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today who will stand alone. So notice the characteristics of David's mighty men. Tenacity, courage, conviction, and finally loyalty. Verses 13 to 17. Here's a loyalty that borders on devotion. We've seen a tenacity that refuses to let go, a courage that stands against lions and giants. We've seen a conviction that will stand alone for what is right. Here's a loyalty that borders on devotion. In verses 13 to 17, it says that David verbalized one day, verse 15, and David longed. That means he's thinking nostalgically. He's longing. He's thinking about happier times. He's remembering his childhood. David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Now, many times in his childhood, David had tasted that cool, refreshing water. There's none like it as far as he's concerned. He has fond memories of drinking water from the well of Bethlehem. And while he's now in this cave, and he's been on the run. And, you know, his, his life is dirty and it's hard and his throat is parched. He says, oh boy, if I could just... He thinks nostalgically back to the time of, that he drank that refreshing water. He said, oh boy, if I could have any wish today. He said, I wish that I could have a drink of that water right now. It would be so good. Notice what happened. His three mighty men, they looked at each other and they began to say, okay, let's go get it for him. And it says the three mighty men broke through the host of the Philistines. Now, they didn't have fair winds and smooth sailing. They had an army to get through. They broke through the host of the Philistines. A host means an army. And they drew water out of the well of Bethlehem. I don't know if they used a bucket or just a gourd dipper or what, but they drew water from the well of Bethlehem and they took it and brought it to David. Now, it was 25 miles Round trip, 12 and a half from the cave of Adullam to Bethlehem and 12 and a half back under the hot Palestinian sun in enemy-occupied territory. And Bethlehem itself was under siege. The Philistines had guards posted at the gate. So these three men had to brave the elements and then fight through the army and get through the gate and get water without spilling a drop. And they brought it back to David. And when they came back and brought it to David, says 2 Samuel 23, 16, and they took it and brought it to David, it says he would not drink it, but he poured it out before the Lord. He poured it out unto the Lord, it says. Now, perhaps your blood pressure is rising right now, and you're saying, of all the nerve, how could he do such a thing i mean that was so disrespectful he completely just ignored the sacrifice they'd made i mean he should have been more grateful i want you to notice dear friends he didn't pour it out 
in disrespect or disregard for what they had done. In fact, it was his great regard for what they had done that David said, only the Lord deserves this kind of loyalty. Here's a loyalty that borders on devotion. You've heard the saying, your wish is my command. That was their motto. David's wish, which is all that this was. He didn't ask them to go. He didn't expect them to go. But they treated his desire as if it were a command. That's how loyal they were to him. But it was a loyalty that bordered on worship. And David knows that only God deserves that kind of loyalty. David refused to accept to himself the devotion of men that bordered on worship. And I want to tell you, these men are a great example to us not to cut corners and do the bare minimum. You know, many of us today say, well, I'll do what's required of me, but no further. You know, it's easy to use any excuse. It's easy to just do the bare minimum. But oh, these men who were so loyal to David are a great example to us to go beyond the call of duty to serve the one that has been so good to us. Oh, wonderful Savior.